Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome everybody to another exciting edition of Animals to the Max. This is going to be an exciting urban edition of Animals to the Max. You guys, I am so excited today because we are going to talk about urban wildlife. We're going to talk about the wildlife in your backyard. Now, wait a second. Before you switch this podcast or you're like, wait a second, Corbin, I tuned in to hear about something exotic. Stay with me. Stick with me. I promise you are going to love today's guests and you're going to love all the animals we talk about. On the show, we have Tiana Selleck, and she also goes by This Wild Fauna. She is amazing. She's a great wildlife educator. She's actually Nat Geo certified. She has worked with animals for many, many, many years, and she focuses on misunderstood species and animals in urban areas and how they adapt with humans. As you'll find out, we kind of connected through Instagram, where it seems like I'm connecting with all my podcast guests. We're just this awesome community over on Instagram. She just focuses on these animals that a lot of people really don't think about. They're just in their backyards. And so we talk about animals like raccoons, coyotes, pigeons, rats, peregrine falcons, foxes. Just the list goes on. And there's so much interesting information in this podcast. I promise you're going to find a lot of value. And I think that after you listen to this, you really are going to look outside and I'm not trying to sound cheesy, but I'm looking outside right now as I record this and I'm looking at a bird and I'm like, wow, I'm appreciating that dove so much more, an animal that is just so adapted to urban environments. So once again, I promise you guys are going to love this. Before we get started, as always, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes, leave a rating, uh, let people know, you know, I guess in the review, what your favorite episode is. It just helps to get the show out there and also make sure to share this podcast with family and friends. Another reminder, if you have not had a chance, as always, please make sure to check out Animal Nights Live. So that is my late night show I host. And I know I sound like a beaten record, but I really encourage you guys to check this show out. I've had so much fun with this show. And it was honestly, it, the reason why we started Animal Nights Live was because of this whole quarantine, this whole coronavirus pandemic is where we're literally stuck at home. And, you know, now we're moving back into stages here, even where I'm from, like now we're back to stage three and now places are starting to close down again. Animal Nights Live is a great way to virtually learn about animals, to interact with me, to also, you know, communicate with a bunch of people around the world who love animals. And once again, I really encourage you to check that out. Animal Nights Live airs every Thursday on my Instagram. Facebook and TikTok, and my handle is just at Corbin Maxi. And you can actually check out the broadcast. So if you are watching from around the world and you can't tune in, because you know we we go live at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Tim, Mountain Standard Time. I can't talk. We go live at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, 10 p.m. Eastern. For some of you, that's like in the middle of the morning, right? And you guys don't want to stay up, right? It's too late. You can watch that broadcast the next morning on my Instagram for 24 hours. And I also put portions up on YouTube, but definitely go check that out. Okay, with that said, you guys, let's do this. Let's learn about some amazing wildlife in our backyards. Please welcome to the show, Tiana Selleck. How are you doing today? 
I am awesome. Thank you. How are you? I'm. Thank you for. No one ever asks how I'm doing. <laughs> I am doing great. <laughs> thank you so much for I'm asking. I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm so happy you reached out. You go by this wild fauna on Instagram, and you reached out to me, and I love this. Like through Instagram, how you're able to connect with other wildlife professionals, and then I, I did a little Instagram snooping, and I found out you were Nat Geo certified as an educator. You know, you've uh, got a zoology degree, and I thought, wow, I need to ask you to come on the show. Yeah, I'm so glad you did too. Yeah, it's it's really cool right now uh, seeing this like kind of blossoming animal community on Instagram uh, and to, to be able to connect in that way with people from all over the place. And yeah, I was lucky to kind of stumble upon you and so glad you agreed to have me on your show. Yes. And you focus actually, and I, this is, this is where you got me. Cause you sent me, cause I asked you like, do you, you know, would you be interesting for the audience? And you just, you hit me and you said you focus on misunderstood species and almost like urban wildlife or maybe wildlife that we really just, people really don't focus on. And you mentioned something about how we all focus on the, you know, the megafauna and you, you can kind of go into that, but I found that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, you know, I you see a lot of really sort of charismatic megafauna on Instagram and, you know, people with these crazy images and videos. And even you the other day you were snuggling an emu and I thought that was so <laughs> cool. But, you know, you see people doing things with lions and elephants and all these incredible animals. And I've always sort of been in my own kind of personal and professional life a really huge advocate for the underdogs and these sort of more misunderstood animals that are right under our noses and we're completely taking them for granted. So I thought, you know, that might be something worth touching upon today. Yes, absolutely. And can you pronounce the scientific term that you reached out to me? And a lot of people might not even know what this is, but um, can we go into that? Yeah, I called them synanthropic species. Synanthropic species. If you can spell that audience, I'll give you a free... Uh, anyway, I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Okay, so go ahead. So explain more about what types of animals uh, are the... Wait, what did you say? Syn... I've, Syn... I've... Go ahead. <laughs> Synanthropic. Synanthropic. I did hear this. This is like you took me back to biology 191 and I'm just like, wait, what? So I'm just... <laughs> okay. Tell yeah, us... Yeah, so... So in Greek, uh, I guess a literal translation, I think, is um, together with man, which is really kind of beautiful if you think about it. Um, but yeah, these are the species that are living alongside us um, and they're actually benefiting in some way from our presence, whether that's certain behaviors of ours or our artificial habitats. So uh, living in a city, you know, in an urban environment, uh, I'm very familiar with these and I'm sure you are as well. These are our you know, skunks and our coyotes, our, our pigeons, geese, we got house sparrows, cockroaches, rats, Ooh, yeah. um, you know, these animals that you'll see in and around a city. And uh, they're not just tolerating our presence. Some of them are actually really benefiting from it, which is really cool. And the reason that I think this is interesting is oftentimes when we are talking about animals uh, in this day and age, um, we're talking about the loss of habitat. We're talking about loss of biodiversity. We're seeing these huge declines in in all sorts of animals globally. And, uh, you know, it's really negative messaging. And uh, it's all true. It's all very important. Uh, it is a global crisis. Um, but one sort of unexpected consequence, I guess, of uh, human activity around the world is that a few species, a small handful of really unique species, have actually managed to see this 
whole situation as an opportunity and they're exploiting that opportunity and they're doing it in very creative um, and really genius ways. And I think it's really important to highlight them as well. Uh, and so that's kind of what I'd like to do with you today. Just kind of dive into some of the traits that enable these animals to thrive in our presence. Uh, some of the neat things that these animals are doing and what we can actually learn from them about coexisting with nature on a local, regional and global scale. Heck yes. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. So immediately when you were talking about the species, I had animals popping up in my mind and you named off a lot of them. I immediately thought rats because I mean, I just think New York City. Um, and immediately I thought, oh my gosh, peregrine falcons, right? Using the sky. Well, that, anyway, that just came to mind. But yes, let's talk about this. But really quick, your background, have you always just been fascinated with animals? Yeah. I mean, have you ever met an animal person who didn't start their story with when I was a kid? <laughs> I mean, I I actually, I have interviewed someone like, did you ever? Yeah. Anyway, someone's like, well, actually, no, animals weren't the focus. And I kind of fell into it. So, but no, you're right. Most people are wow, like, I grew yeah. up catching lizards and I, you know, was, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. It's always, it's always in, in the early days for me, it was, you know what it was is uh, I really loved the show and I'm, I'm not sure if you watched this growing up, uh, but it was a show called Zaboomafu. Oh, yes. Yeah, the so Kratz. Chris and Martin Kratt. Yeah, the Kratt brothers. Uh, I was watching them, and I loved Jane Goodall and Steve Irwin and all of these sort of science communicators. And uh, that was something that really stood out to me as a kid was just this – and I think I actually used the same – term to describe you at one point was an unbridled passion or like enthusiasm for animals that really impacted me as a young kid. And I sort of carried that with me throughout my life and always sort of in the back of my mind knew that I, I wanted to do something with animals, but I wasn't sure exactly what. Um, so yeah, I, I pursued my zoology degree and that was actually sort of where I first started thinking about synanthropic species and how interesting they were. Um, I did an independent research project in my last year of my education, and I was looking at the effect of urbanization on the abundance and diversity of animals and focusing specifically on uh, on the little brown bat, which oh, maybe wow. we can talk about later, but sure. a very successful synanthrope here where I live in Calgary. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I graduated and still wasn't sure what to do with this degree. And I was doing a lot of volunteer work um, and internships and that sort of thing at various wildlife centers. And so I was actually working directly with urban wildlife that had either been injured or orphaned and were in need of rehabilitation. And I loved working with them hands on. I really did. But I sort of fell into education when one of the wildlife centers I was doing animal care for was in need of someone to do their uh, their raptor programs. So they oh. had these really cool education programs that they did with uh, a resident, um, owl and hawk, these ambassadors that couldn't be released because of uh, really terrible injuries. Um, but anyway, you know, I, I found as I was talking to people about animals and specifically talking to kids about animals, I realized there's so many different ways to help wildlife and to, to participate in conservation. And as much as I loved those hands-on interactions, you know, in wildlife rehab, it's always one step forward, one step back. Mm -hmm. You know, you're rehabilitating and releasing a couple animals each day and then a couple more come in the very next. And it just feels like this conveyor belt and it's it can be kind of easy to lose hope, but I found a lot of hope in working with kids and seeing how if I said the right things and I expressed my passion and my knowledge and you know, just shared the right fun fact or whatever it might be that day, 
I could kind of ignite that same fire in them that the Krupp brothers did for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's really powerful, right? To mold those young minds and hope that they turn into adults one day who want to help animals too. So that was kind of how I got involved with wildlife education. And then I ended up eventually working at my local zoo where I worked for four years as a wildlife conservation educator. Again, just trying to stoke those uh, those young minds. And yeah, yeah well, a really, really fun job that led to some really cool opportunities. But we have to go into that because there's a lot of people who listen to the show who are aspiring zoologists or who want to get into this field. But sometimes there's a lot of people who want to work with animals, but they're terrified of public speaking. And it sounds like you like got the job where you're in front of audiences. Did it take you time to adjust to speaking in front of crowds and trying to convey information about the animals to audiences? Absolutely. I think, I think you, you probably, you know, that most animal people are introverts, you know, they love animals, but that doesn't necessarily mean they love being uh, in, in and amongst huge groups of people. And I'm definitely one of those. Um, but I found it really powerful to stand in front of people and to watch as their minds were sort of opened and expanded. And, you know, the, the very first time that you see a kid be really enthusiastic about a misunderstood species or, or you see an adult completely change their mind about a misunderstood species, it's so powerful. And that was sort of the driving force that propelled me and so there absolutely is a little bit of anxiety anytime you get in front of a bunch of people but it's so worth it just to have that satisfaction at the end and know that hopefully maybe you impacted somebody in a really in a in a powerful way that was such a well-crafted answer i and of course you've been trained for this but i was gonna say also <laughs> like i mean if you're listening you're like i don't care like what you guys say i'm terrified of you know about people and speaking in front of people that people are there to see the animals and more often than not, some of them aren't even listening to you and they're not going to be fact checking you. So like, just realize that. And that's what, I mean, I think it's so cool because when I do shows, I'm like, well, I mean, the people could hate me, but I mean, they're going to love the animals. <laughs> like exactly. it'd be so much easier than a comedian. Right. I mean, so anyway, so people are there to see the animals and you know, a lot of people at zoos are there to learn. So don't be scared folks listening. Cause you could definitely do it. Absolutely. Perfect. Okay. So you work at the zoo for four years. What type of species are you working with? You know, it's funny, people would always ask me what animals do you work with at the zoo? And I worked in the education department, so my uh -huh. answer was children. Oh, you know, God, like yeah. <laughs> just the scariest yeah, uh, yep, yep, yep. animal of all. Um, yeah, you know, we had a lot of small handleable animals that uh -huh. we had in our program collection. And oftentimes it was our zookeepers who did most of the handling. I did work with a couple small ones. Uh, my most memorable experience was actually working with tarantulas. I am oh. a severe arachnophobe. Okay, so I I love animals, love them all, um, but I just have always had this visceral and completely irrational fear of spiders, and uh, that was one of the ones that we worked with quite regularly. And uh, again, this is where you know fear shouldn't be the reason that you, you don't you don't get into animals or or do these sorts of things because actually I found the kids related so much to my fear. And if I was really honest about that, that, you know, I am fear, fearful of this animal, but I recognize that as ir irrational. I respect them for their ecosystem services and, and I love them nonetheless. I think that's a message that that really affected a lot of a lot of the kids that I worked with. And so it's actually a really cool experience to be able to share that vulnerability. And in doing so, the more that I worked with this animal, the less fearful I became of it and eventually really came to to genuinely enjoy <laughs> spending time with them, not just from a 
scientific uh, place, but like really internally enjoyed being around them. So, yeah. So can you sum all that up in a text message and please send it to my wife? Because I am trying to get her to get into tarantulas. I just, I, I can't. It's like going, I just, it's like through a brick wall. She's like, done. I can't do it. She doesn't like them. And we, I rescued five of them when she was out of town. And it just, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that on Instagram. I was going to message you and be like, no, no. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I used her car to like transport the tarantulas because mine was oh, out of commission. Man. I know. And then I did it all on my IG story. And it's funny because she doesn't watch my stuff. <laughs> so I was like, that's your fault that you didn't watch my story because I was all over that, like telling people and people were like messaging me. And yeah, anyway, but yeah, so. Oh, man. Hope you had a comfortable couch to I lay sl- on that I night. slept on the couch. Yeah. And I documented <laughs> it. It was pretty funny. Anyway, okay. So you that's cool you got over your fear though. That's that's awesome. Cause I think tarantulas are great. And yeah, I think they're they're really good education animals. Like kids yeah. love tarantulas. Absolutely. And I uh for me I found the trick was to really kind of and maybe this is helpful for your wife was to not think of them as a species, but really just hone in on one individual at a time. You know, and, oh. and, and you know, focus on that individuals preferences and their moods and their fears and their personality and really try to understand them as an individual. Uh, that was something that was really helpful for me with the tarantula I worked with, whose name was Ramona, who's unfortunately <laughs> since passed away, but Ramona was really sweet. And when I could, when I could recognize that and see that in her, I felt like a compassion and a warmth towards her instead of, you know, just this very generalized fear that came from a place of, you know, you have eight legs and that's uncomfortable for me. Uh, really seeing her as like a, a little, a little entity. <laughs> yeah. We did a naming contest for one of our tarantulas and guess what the number one name was? What? Oh, hell no. I swear. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I can't do that in front of the kids. Like I can't say, Oh, this is all hell. No. So oh, gosh, no. <laughs> yeah, gosh, no. Anyway. Okay. So I'm sorry. We got sidetracked. So you're working at the zoo, you're educating people and let's go. So what's next? I know I have some, some notes that you did some volunteer work in South Africa and also California. Is that next after your, your zoological career? You know, it's hard to say. I, um, uh, at the moment, I'm sort of between gigs as a result of the pandemic, which mm. I know a lot of people are as well. And so there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment about what that will look like for our field um, specifically, because there is a lot of that interaction with animals and, and with humans, specifically children. And so, you know, I'm kind of in a little bit of a limbo at the moment, but that's okay. I'm sort mm. of just taking this as an opportunity to um, build on some of my skills and uh, gain some knowledge. I'm doing some art at the moment because oh, that, yeah, that's sort of a, um, a new avenue I've decided to take up as a way to continue talking about animals during this time where I, I don't have my, my typical platform. Um, but yeah, I'm sort of open to any opportunity that uh, presents itself at this point. And I feel like as long as I'm working with animals and I continue to pursue projects that I love, it'll all kind of work out. Good, in the end. good for you for being positive. Cause you could totally take this the wrong way and be depressed. I mean, not you personally, but just with this whole, you know, pandemic, it just, you could go down two ways. And I think looking at it positively and using this as an opportunity is the way to do it. And I think that's, I think that's great. I'm so happy you said that. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so let's get into some of these species, the urban species. I want you to hit me with some amazing facts. I want you to hit me with some of your favorites <laughs> and how they've adapted well with humans. Gosh, I don't even know where to start. Um, 
you, you mentioned peregrines. Yes, Maybe we can start there. Okay, perfect. Uh, so peregrine falcons are not necessarily an animal that's in any abun- abundance uh, where I live. But I did recently, this is maybe a year ago, um, Nat Geo does these uh, live presentations um, every now and then. And they had brought uh, some explorers to my neck of the woods. And one of them was Bertie Gregory. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. Oh, no. I'm To be honest, no. But oh, is it good? Look him up as soon as we're done talking. What Birdie is his Gregory. name? Birdery. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Birdie. 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 His name's Birdie? Birdie Gregory. Oh, my God. Absolutely adorable, endearing filmmaker, photographer, okay. Nat Geo explorer. Perfect. Um, anyway, a while back, he's from the UK, a while back, he did a really cool photo project where uh, he was assigned to go photograph urban wildlife uh, around London and Bristol. And one of the focuses of his project quickly became the peregrine falcon and he has some really incredible photos of them and uh in this presentation he talked about you know how they have unexpectedly sort of become a synanthrope um so this is an animal if if you're not familiar with their history that uh was endangered not too long ago um they experienced a really rapid decline in numbers in the 40s 50s 60s and by the 70s had made their way to the endangered species list And they had a long list of threats, um, but a big one was insecticides that were being used at the time, DDT and that sort of thing. Um, And in in parts of their range, they had become completely extirpated, had become locally extinct, and in others, their numbers had dropped by something like 90%. And uh, one of the things that really helped them out was that, um, well, of course, DDT ended up being banned, and that was helpful, but... There were um, there were peregrines that were being captively bred. Now, when they were released, a lot of them were actually released in cities, and they created nests within these cities. And uh, this is one of the biggest reasons that their their numbers exploded was actually because it's the urban population that exploded. And this is for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that they had a plentiful food supply in these cities because one of their favorite foods is pigeons. And any urban dweller knows there's no shortage of pigeons in any major city. And so they were well fed. Another reason is that cities provide a lot of uh, vertical landscape elements, um, buildings, towers, and that sort of thing, which are very familiar to a peregrine, um, sort of reminiscent of their cliff homes that they would have in nature. Um, and another really interesting one was that um, the urban lights, um, so street lights and lights from buildings, were actually able to extend the amount of time in a day that they could spend hunting because oh. it improved visibility and allowed them to even hunt at night and become sort of nocturnal uh, and hunt their prey for longer. So, um, you know, that's one in- interesting effect of urbanization on animals is that some of their circadian rhythms actually become a little altered. And so their numbers went up. And I think by like 1999, they were removed from the endangered species list. And and now they're considered a success story because of cities, which is really, yeah. you know, really interesting. It is weird. And, you know, I like how you talked about the lights because... I've, I've, you know, obviously learned about light pollution and you hear all the negatives regarding, you know, light pollution, you know, these artificial lights and regarding the declining numbers of, you know, sea turtles are a great example who are, who are affected by light pollution. But I've never, it's interesting to look at an animal that has actually thrived because of these city lights and that's so crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's all sorts of different examples of ways that urbanization is impacting wildlife and, of course, there's a long list of negatives, right? Um, 
pollution, mm. you know, there's pesticides even in cities, vehicle collisions, mm. uh, conflict with pets, window strikes for birds. Oh. You've got, um, you know, retribution from humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a really big one. You know, I, I don't know how many times I've heard people complaining about coyotes because perhaps they've lost a pet to one or, you know, rabbits because they've lost a garden to one or, yeah. or beautiful uh, golf uh you know, lawns because of geese or whatever it might be. So there's there's a lot of negative things that, that can present themselves in an urban environment. But there are some some interesting uh, positive impacts that cities can have on animals too. Um, a big one is actually reduced predation. So, I mean, we talked about the, the peregrines eating the pigeons, but actually there aren't obviously a lot of large predators in cities. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the limiting factors in a city is, is going to be size Um, and typically when we think of things like large carnivores mountain lions that sort of thing because of their large home ranges because of their low population densities as solitary animals and because they're seen as a threat to public safety uh, they don't do well in cities (laughs) but but what this means is that by eliminating or excluding these large carnivores these key predators we're actually creating a bit of a trophic cascade um, this opportunity for what they call uh, mesopredator release, where um, you're basically just creating a space without predators or competition for your medium-sized yes. uh, uh, predators to thrive. So those are your coyotes, your foxes, maybe even your bobcats and, R- and that sort of thing. Raccoons, absolutely. So you're just creating more opportunity for them. Um, so they're not only protected from those predators in large cities, but also certain climactic factors they might be kind of buffered against but i think the big one the biggest one is the availability of food if you think about it you know food is something that's very seasonal in most parts of the world um i think you're in idaho is that right i'm in idaho yep yeah so i'm just a little bit north of you in alberta and we've got some crazy seasons like i really really feel for animals here in the winter time it's it's tough um but it's easier in a city. And that's yeah. because there's always garbage. Yeah. There's always litter. There's always bird feeders and there's roadkill and there's gardens and there's pets. And, you know, there's oh, yeah. there's so much more opportunity uh, for, you know, reliable food sources. So those are kind of some of the positives. But, um, yeah, there's oh, there's so many examples we could get into. I yeah. don't even know where to so start, to be honest, I, Corbin. <laughs> okay, so I, I know because I want to hit you with some animals. So you're, you're just talking and all these animals. And I, I'm thinking yes. w- when you say city, I think in New York because I used mm-hmm. to go there a lot. Now, who knows when I'll be back. But uh, New York, I mean, you, you land and pigeons everywhere. Let's talk about pigeons. <laughs> mm. Let's talk about pigeons. Okay. Yeah, so I did um, part of the the project that I did in university was this literature review where I was sort of collecting all these different studies that had been done about um, the effect of urbanization on animals. And what I kept finding was that birds were the most studied uh, group of animals Mm. um, in terms of the effect of urbanization on them. And so I compiled a bunch of different studies, and these are kind of some of the patterns that I found. Um, When it comes to birds, there's a couple of things you want to be if you intend to succeed in an okay. urban environment. Okay. Uh, one is that you should probably be an omnivore. And this is true for, for other groups of animals as well. You're going to be way more successful as a generalist than a specialist. You mm-hmm. can't be a picky eater in an urban environment. A big one is being social 
or gregarious. And that's because by being able to communicate, you can not only communicate where food sources are, but what threats to be wary of. And of course, pigeons are very social animals and this works in their favor. Uh, another thing you should probably be is a species whose natural ecology finds them in a mountain or a forest habitat oh, okay. rather than an open landscape like a prairie, for example. And that's because if you're already accustomed to a vertical landscape and you like to perch up high, there are countless opportunities for that in a city. If you are a ground nester, you're as good as dead in a city. You're susceptible yeah. to, you know, cars, cats, and, and a whole slew of things. Um, another thing is to be sedentary. Um, and that's because if if you're not a migratory species, if, if you can stick out that winter and you can really stay in a place year round, you're going to become really familiar with the conditions there. You're going to become familiar with the challenges there, as opposed to a species that's going back and forth, constantly exposing themselves to new threats that uh, they might not be equipped to handle. And another big one, this one is really interesting, is that monomorphic species, meaning the male and the female uh, look very similar. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, they do better than dimorphic species. And I spent a really long time trying to figure out <laughs> why this might be. Nobody's really sure. Uh, an obvious um, answer might be that dimorphic species are less camouflaged. Typically, mm -hmm. the male is really easy to spot, and that might put him in danger. Uh, but another theory is that these dimorphic species that are sort of prioritizing this bright plumage and uh -huh. really impressive colors have possibly made an energetic trade-off, uh, meaning that so much of their energy is put into their appearance and less is maybe placed in their ability to adapt to novel oh, environments or God. challenges or sort of intellectual uh, things. And then the last one is um, species that have a really wide geographic range tend to do better than more sort of endemic species, uh, which is sort of intuitive, I suppose. But um, essentially, if this animal has already evolved for a variety of different challenges, then it's just naturally going to be better equipped to handle um, a novel, unpredictable, changing environment, which is, of course, exactly what a city is. So if you think about pigeons, and then you think about those sort of five or six traits that I mentioned, they are essentially all of those. They are monomorphs, they are sedentary, they are social. And so, yeah, they they make a, a heaven for themselves out of New York City. I mean, think of all the opportunities for roosts and food and and communication there. So if they can just sneak through that winter, they're they're good as gold out there. Wow. Okay. That's so interesting. I yeah. Okay. So another animal that comes to mind. I'm going off my New York City. These are the animals I have seen. <laughs> uh, rats. I mean, yes. are you a oh, fan of rats? Yeah. Rats. Let's talk okay. rats. You just got excited. That's awesome. Yeah. Let's talk rats. So I got really excited for a couple of reasons. I love rats. I think they're. They're so smart. They're they're curious. They're adorable. I love them. Um, but the other reason I got excited to talk about them is I live in, in Alberta, the okay. province of Alberta. And Alberta is considered to be the largest rat-free populated area in the world. Rat-free? Rat-free. <laughs> what? Rat-free? Really? Okay. Yeah. So this is... 
you know, how, how rat-free can a place possibly be? But the reason that they call it rat-free is because supposedly the first rat sort of appeared in Alberta sometime in the 1950s. Okay. And the Albertan government was like, oh, hell no, we're not having any of this. <laughs> and uh, they basically developed this, you know, these rat control measures and decided they were going to exterminate every rat from the province and create a situation where the rats could not return. They were they were determined to become rat free. And so uh, for years, this went on, um, they were being shot, they were being poisoned, um, they were being gassed, they were being bulldozed, and infested Bulldoze? buildings were oh being my... burned down. <laughs> oh my god. Yes. So if you had a property, if you had a farmhouse or whatever it might be, and you had a rat infestation, it was your responsibility to deal with that, or the government could come and burn your building down. Oh my God. They would have burned our cabin down for sure. (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Continue. (laughs) Yeah. So the reason they were able to do this is because there are parts of Alberta that are quite hostile for rats. Um, The Western side of Alberta is the Rocky mountains, which is not a brown rats preferred habitat. The Northern part of Alberta has the boreal forest, which is also not really their niche. And then you've got the high plains of Montana in the South also not great. So it's really just the eastern border with Saskatchewan that they had to worry about Um, and so they used every uh, weapon they had in their arsenal including arsenic um, to basically eliminate every rat that they could for decades until uh, they reached this stage where they could declare themselves rat free and so now we're in the situation where um, as a resident of Alberta you are to report any rat sightings so they can be dealt with and rats can only be in the possession of i believe zoos universities and research institutes they are illegal to own as pets and you are to report anyone you know who has a rat as a pet they could be fined or jailed for the possession no way oh my god i'm learning so much here (laughs) okay what yeah so as a as a rat lover yes i'm devastated oh you are so full of it if you found one in your hotel room in new york have you seen some of these suckers are huge i mean i would get myself a domestic rat corp and not a super rat (laughs) i guess you're you're right because you're like i love rats it's like if you've seen some of these giant ones in new york you'd be like oh my gosh they are like their own category aren't they like the subway rats of new york are like next level but if you, you know yeah, if you hit, sorry, like if you hit, and I'm not meaning like hit hard, but tap with your foot, because everyone puts the trash out at night in New York City in the big black bags. If you just tap it with your foot, you'll see the garbage move. It's insane. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, maybe I wouldn't get one of those. But, um, you know, it is a, a shame because I, I, I think they're, you know, rats are incredibly intelligent animals, social, creative, uh, all of these different things and def- definitely fall under that category of sort of misunderstood um so i love them i love raccoons and and all of that as well but um yeah i think that uh one of the things that we could definitely learn from these animals is a little bit of uh maybe how to redefine this notion of pest and that's something that i really want to get into because i think you know even when you say the word rat people are you know (laughs) like oh pest and you know they're kind of clumped into this category with roaches and and all sorts of really nasty animals but um i really hate that word pest and i'll tell you why i guess okay. um 
the definition of the word pest depends depends where you look, but I think it's something like you know a species that is detrimental to humans and and their activities. Okay, so that's referring to animals, I suppose, that are damaging your crops, that are maybe a nuisance within your home, um, something like that. Um, but if you really think about it. It's humans that are changing the landscape. We're the ones changing the environment, right? We're erecting these huge cities, these highways, um, and and we're really altering the way that the, the natural world looks. And so we've created this space, and now we don't tolerate animals in that space that conflict with our activities and our purpose. And I think we need a little bit of humility um, in there. We need to recognize that a lot of these animals were there first, right? That was their home that we took over. That's their space. And that in and of itself is an issue, right? So that's that's kind of my first problem with the word pest. But also when we use the word pest, we're, we're defining these animals in, in relation to ourselves, right? Like our, our purposes are priority and everything else is sort of other. Mm. And instead, you know, these animals are a really good opportunity to, to shift our perspective and, and try to recognize what their purposes might be. And we'll actually find that they're very similar to our own. You know, these animals are simply trying to raise their families and, and, you know, have a dinner at the end of the day and, and find a safe place to sleep and, and make it to tomorrow. You know, they have a lot of shared interests to ourselves and we're viewing them through this very narrow lens of the ways that they are detrimental uh, to us. And and I just really think that's wrong. Um, I think it's problematic that when animals exploit a situation to improve their circumstances, we call them pests. But when humans exploit a situation we're intelligent. We're progressing. You know? <laughs> so I think I think that we either need to start giving animals more credit and calling them intelligent and progressive when they exploit a situation to benefit themselves, or we need to consider ourselves pests. We need to recognize that maybe we fall under that category too, because in relationship to them, we're the ones whose actions are detrimental. Right? And so um, I think we need to kind of reevaluate that that term pest um, because a lot of people will use pest as sort of a synonym for a synanthropic animal. And uh, I think the word synanthrope is so much more beautiful because it's acknowledging these animals' tenacity, their intelligence, their resilience, their <laughs> dexterity, their creativity, um, all of these things that we should really respect them for uh, instead of viewing them as as something negative. Wow. I, that was so well said. That was great. And you know what, you know what came to mind and I keep on going back to New York city and rats, but like I have <laughs> literally seen rats carrying away like half pieces of pizza in New York. Yeah. And it's like, New York pizza is great. I'm sure rats think that too. Like we're all, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> like I don't blame them. A slice of New York pizza. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like I've literally seen them take half a slice of pizza down and it's like, well, we do the same darn thing. We all in there. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh my God. Okay. I, oh, that was so well said. I love that. Very, very good. So uh, some of the other animals that come to mind, you know, uh, of course, I, I love raccoons. I mean, they're yeah. just like my, you know, and they get such a bad rap for just a variety of different things. Can we kind of go into raccoons? Yeah, we could talk about raccoons. I, uh, you know, it's funny. I, growing up in Calgary, 
I didn't think we had raccoons um, mm-hmm. because um, yeah, I had never personally seen one. And and uh, even working at the wildlife center here, for we never got them in. Oh. And it wasn't until I, you know, relocated to a wildlife center in California that they were they were just coming in and in hordes. And I started kind of looking into it and found that actually we have had them in Calgary for something like thirty years, but ours are because they're new to the area are still quite shy and timid uh, are really only coming out at night. Um, But in other parts of Canada, like Ontario and even in Vancouver, raccoons are actually a huge issue for a lot of people. They are, they've been there for a long time and they've become very, very bold. These are animals that, um, you know, they, they, they go for what they want and they go for it relentlessly. They are incredibly dexterous. They're good climbers, which serves them well in, a, again, a vertical environment. Um, and they are perfect generalists. They're very easygoing with regards to their habitat and to their diet, things that work in their favor. And, of course, they love garbage bins. Um, but this is something that's really interesting that I was thinking about today. I was like, what am I going to blabber about on, on this podcast? <laughs> I was thinking about this is that, um, you know, With the pressure that cities put on animals, scientists, some scientists actually think that microevolution might be taking place. And and what I mean by that is that, you know, we're putting so many pressures on animals that they're being sort of forced to really rapidly adapt to to, to these pressures and we are the major selective pressure which is really interesting if you think about it without humans things like climate and landscape and prey availability are are selective factors in evolution but but we are the biggest one right now and so there's sort of the selection that's taking place in these creatures um that's favoring those that have traits that enable them to live alongside us and overcome the challenges that we create and so in a way by coming up with things like you know, raccoon proof bins, and I'm using a little air quotes here, um, we're actually just sort of pushing natural selection along, we're almost facilitating this process. And we're forcing those animals to become smarter, to become more creative, to really rise to the challenge. And so I wonder, are we just creating like, super animals like super raccoons are we just making even more um of these behaviors that that we sort of condemn in this animal by continuing to push them to rise to the challenge so uh yeah raccoons are are one of the best examples of that they've really taken over in a big way they move into spaces really quickly they're incredibly sneaky and it's almost as though you know they understand our actions and our patterns in a way they know to wait until nighttime to come out and they know how to move through this matrix of kind of fragmented natural spaces to get to where they need to be without being seen and they're very wily and cunning and so i just think you know they are one of the most beautiful and interesting synanthropes that I can think of. Yeah. I, you know, that is so interesting. So what would you, I guess, suggest like someone's listening is like, okay, so we don't use a raccoon proof bin. So do we just leave the cat food out? Do we put it up? I mean, what is your answer to that? I mean, cat food's always a no, you know, it's interesting. I actually, so I was listening to a couple of your podcasts this week and I know you had um, one of your friends who's a wildlife rehabber on. And she talked, 
Yeah, maybe. <laughs> she's so sweet. Isn't she great? Oh, she is so she like smokes cigarettes the whole time during the interview. She's amazing. Like she just like gets to drink, smoke, and she just like and she doesn't even know what she's doing with the podcast. I love. Anyway, go ahead. I love her. She's incredible. Yeah, yeah. and I know she talked a, a lot about raccoons. And yep. one of the things I really liked that she said was, you know, she was talking about how we put food out for one animal. And then we get upset when the wrong animal takes the food. Yeah. As if that raccoon was supposed to know that that food was out there for your cat, you know. Um, and I think she said something like, "You can't put uh, you can't put candy out on the driveway and be mad when the neighborhood kids come and steal it or something." Yes, <laughs> something I like love that. that. Yes. And and it's so true, you know. So um, if you are having issues with raccoons in your area, maybe it's a good time to 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 reassess some of the ways that that we're doing things again you know these animals their intentions are are simply to survive and uh raccoons are incredibly opportunistic and they're looking for you know the quickest easiest way to do that like like any uh living organism is and so you know if you don't if you don't want them in your area don't create those opportunities for them to to exploit um I'm not saying we shouldn't have raccoon-proof bins. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we should, but, you know, not leaving food out for your pets is a really easy way to <laughs> reduce yes. the number of uh, wild visitors you're going to have in your driveway. So um, it's little things like that. And I know, you know, in an urban environment, a lot of people uh, around here, especially a lot of people are into birding. And so they'll put out these bird feeders in the hopes of attracting themselves a, a downy woodpecker or whatever it might be. And then they're just so miffed when a squirrel comes and takes <laughs> the food instead. And it's just, you know, you can't be selective with those things. If you want wildlife, you're going to get wildlife, but you can't, you can't be picky because once no. you open the doors, they're going to come, right? 100%. And by the way, I love Mady. I'm so happy you listen to the podcast. Yeah. And she is more than just cigarettes. And the reason why I said that is I want you to picture her. She's this tiny lady who is just full of information. She doesn't give a rat's ass about what anyone has to say. And she's just for animals. And I love her. So I'm so happy you enjoyed that interview. Oh, I love it. She's so <laughs> yeah. sassy and adorable. Oh, she's so <laughs> sassy. She's so... Okay, anyway. So please check those out. Those are um, older podcasts. But let's talk... So you kind of... Um, it's interesting how you said that maybe that we are selecting for these animals to almost become more intelligent by doing this. And the number, the thing that just popped in my mind were coyotes. And I think, and I know, you know, a lot about coyotes. And I think my favorite fact is learning and just like learning that when we basically try to exterminate coyotes are one of the few animals that can actually determine like the amount of like pups they have. Correct. So like by there's been studies, whereas like when you're eradicating coyotes, you're actually just adding to this problem. And can we go into that? Because I find that so interesting. And that is an animal that is, I mean, it's just, it's adapted so well to just urbanization. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I was reading somewhere that they, they think coyotes have essentially colonized every major city in North America. Mm. And that's incredible. So again, a, a perfect generalist to be yep. able to live in the, you know, heat of Arizona and live through the winters of Northern Alberta. Like that's yep. absolutely incredible. Um, and again, you have this social species and that, that really works in their favor, the way that they're able to communicate and collaborate with one another and that sort of thing. It's funny, I was reading this story uh, recently about, about coyotes um, in Western Canada. And I think they, in Vancouver, in, in British Columbia, um, they were hit with this first really big wave of, of coyotes in the 1980s. The population was growing and people were becoming concerned. They were scared for their children and scared for their pets. 
And, uh, you know, the, the government officials said, you know, don't worry, we'll handle it. And uh, what they did was they, they set out all these traps across the city with meat as bait and reassured everyone that these traps would be so successful that in only three weeks, all of these coyotes would be gone. Yeah, yeah. Three weeks later, they had not caught a single one. Really? Not one. <laughs> because these animals are, they're smart. They're yes. incredibly cunning. They're observant. You know, they they haven't made it all the way across North America by being, you know, dumb and gullible. These are, these are really smart creatures. And um, so I think with, with an animal like that, what we really need is, is better education. People are incredibly misinformed about yes. coyotes and, and their diets and their intentions and, and all of this. And I know a lot of major cities now actually have coyote awareness programs because oh. they're, they're really trying to educate the public and, um, and make them feel safe. And, and here in Calgary, I know there's a, I believe she's a geography professor that works for the university and she does sort of coyote counts and uh, informs the public on our local population of coyotes. And a couple of years ago, she did um, a, a fecal sort of study, an examination of scat from something like 500 different coyotes. And the reason that she was doing it was because a lot of homeowners had expressed concern that, you know, these pests are are eating our pets and in in those 500 fecal samples okay. only six contained pet remains okay so that's not much at all that's not much at all and so you know and that's that's one statistic and there's so many others but i think we just really need a reminder that um you know these animals aren't the 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 vermin and the aggressive pests that we're portraying them to be, you know, a, a big part of a coyote's diet is actually rodents, you know, these small animals yes. that are nothing like your cat or your dog or your child. And, and, you know, these animals are also, you know, they're, they're sort of elusive. Their, their interest is not to, you know, come to your backyard and, and attack you. You know, they're, they're sneaking around at night. They're, they're trying not to be seen. They really don't want any trouble. They don't want conflict with us any more than we want it with them. So really statistically, the odds of something like that happening to you because of a coyote are quite slim. And I think we need to be reminded of that and we need to be more educated about that and, and, uh, reassure the public instead of sensationalizing these events when they happen when really um they are quite rare yeah and you know i live out in the country in idaho and you know we have you know we have lives i mean we have chickens and i have a, a really extremely overweight turkey named thomas j turkey and <laughs> he has but but we put them up every night because we live where coyotes are we have foxes which we love the foxes but mm -hmm. we know like you know we put them up and that's that's our responsibility and we have had chances we there has been instances where a fox has gotten a chicken or you know, and it's just one of those like, well, I mean, we're, we're living out in the country. I mean, I, don't, I mean, what else can you do? So I think that people need to be responsible with their pets as well. And, you know, don't let your, first of all, cats are we. That's like a whole different topic. We shouldn't even be letting cats outside because they're just kill. They're like, oh my God, like the, they kill like, I mean, what, like several billion animals. It's insane the amount of birds they kill, but we just need to be more responsible, I think, and just take more precautions, especially when we are, you know, when we're having these interactions with native wildlife. Absolutely. And that's a really good point that you made there, too, is that our domestic animals are more of a threat to wildlife than wildlife are to our domestic animals. Yes. Um, and so we need to be 
realistic about how big this threat actually is and also mindful of those interactions um, because I mean, songbirds and cats, like that's, that's just one of many <laughs> really unfortunate yes. relationships and conflicts. And we don't talk about that half as much as we seem to want to talk about, you know, a coyote eating a chihuahua or, yeah. or whatever it may be. So, yeah. Yeah. That is such a good point. Such a good point. Uh, are there any other, oh, I have a question for you. This is going to be hard. Are you ready for it? I don't know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You've answered everything so beautifully. And yeah, there's no surprise you're Nat Geo certified teacher. But what is your favorite urban animal if you had to pick one? Mm. You know, it's really tricky. Ah, you know, I really love uh, I really love corvids. I love like oh, magpies okay. and, and crows and... Uh, that sort of thing. I actually have a funny story about uh, last year, my, my dad and I had the opportunity to go on a really cool trip to the Galapagos Islands. Wow, cool. Um, yeah, through Lindblad Expeditions. They actually work with uh, the National Geographic Society to create these really amazing trips where your guides are Nat Geo certified naturalists, and they are just so incredibly smart and have, uh, you know, all these experiences with incredible wildlife around the world. They have the opportunity to travel and see uh, animals across the globe. And I was talking one day to one of our guides, his name was Socrates, and he had been all around the world and, and he was really into birds. And so I'm just, you know, imagining the hundreds of incredible exotic birds that he's, he's probably seen. And I asked him one day, um, what's your favorite bird? And I'm expecting him to say something like the you know, magnificent frigate bird or the wandering albatross oh, yeah. or, you know, something, something like that. And he, he stops for a second. He sort of ponders it and he says, no joke, magpies, huh. magpies. And I asked him why. And, you know, he's like, well, I mean, they're majestic. They're, they're cunning. They're intelligent. They're creative. And I'm sitting there being like, wow, like, you know, he's, He's appreciating them accordingly. They absolutely are all of those things. But here in Calgary, they're a quote-unquote pest. People here do not like magpies because they are, uh, you know, getting into your yard, getting into your garbage. They can be quite noisy, quite messy, and all these things. And I just thought that that was so incredible that this man who had, you know, every bird in the world to choose from chose this species that everyone I know completely takes for granted just simply because it's in front of us and because it's abundant. And uh, I just thought that that was really eye-opening and sweet and endearing. And uh, I think of that story every time I see a magpie now. <laughs> and I'm really, you know, interested in them as well um, and the different ways that they are they are unique and special. But that was just really cool to see and um, is exactly why I wanted to have this conversation with you because I think a lot of people need that reminder that Incredible animals are not always in exotic places. Sometimes they are literally in your backyard. <laughs> and and uh, there's so much about them to be noticed and, and appreciated. Yes. I mean, I'm going to think of that every time I see a magpie now, which I I know it's so I, I love corvids. I probably one of my yeah favorite animals to work with and just to talk about because the facts are so mind blowing with how intelligent they are. That's just like mm -hmm. people are just like, oh, my goodness. But that is I, I love that, you know, because we are 
you know, just in, you know, the spring, summer season, whatever, I guess summer season now, and people are outside and they're, you know, and a lot of people are restricted to being at their homes. And it's like, look outside, look outside. There are native animals that, you know, it can be appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. Another one uh, around here that gets a lot of flack from people and I'm always, you know, trying to stand up for it is the the Canada geese. Do you have Canada oh, geese in Idaho? of course. I thought you were going to say opossum, but okay, because I'm like the opossum, <laughs> like, I'm like, leave them alone. Okay, yes, let's talk about geese because they get an awful rap. I'm so happy oh. you brought geese up. Let's let's chat geese. Let's chat geese. So, yeah, this is this is an animal that around here... Oh, gosh, I swear I've never heard a nice thing said about Canada geese, and it breaks my heart because I think that they are some of the toughest and most resilient animals in the world. Like then, And you know what? They just they don't put up with anyone's nonsense. They have no time for it, and I love that about them. But it's because of them I've sort of developed this theory about why animal or why humans don't like synanthropes, uh, and I now share it with anyone who's willing to listen. And... It's that I think there's something psychological going on um, in our hatred for animals like geese and, and raccoons. And it's that we are threatened by animals that challenge us. We're threatened by animals that are intelligent. We like animals that are dopey <laughs> and agreeable and bend to our will. Think about it, people. It, yes. Right? You know, we love dogs. We like cats, but, you know, as long as, you know, they're they're docile. We love horses. And if, when we think about it, to train a horse, to get a horse to do what you, what you want it to do, I believe the exact terminology is you have to break them. Yeah, you are, break you are them breaking in. them. You're breaking them in. You're you're breaking their will. If you think about it, so we like animals that serve our purposes, that um, you know align with our objectives, that make our lives easier. We do not like animals that have their own objectives and strive to make their own lives easier. And that is exactly what geese do. They do not put up with us. They don't care about they, traffic, and they'll they cross in care. the middle of the traffic, and they don't care if they're holding everyone up in their morning commute, and they'll walk as slow as they want. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I think that, you know, these animals should serve as a mirror to ourselves. We should see a lot of ourselves in that in that tenacity and that boldness um, instead of, you know, villainizing them and and seeing them in a negative light. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of something I like to bring up quite often <laughs> with geese around here because, yeah, they're they're nesting on top of people's houses and they're pooping all over the the golf courses and people don't like that, but I just respect the hell out of them for doing what they need to do and protecting their young at all costs and, you know, just weathering, weathering the storm that we've created around them. Yeah. We had some neighbors. My parents had some neighbors move in from California, which we love the Californians moving into Idaho. It's kind of a joke because <laughs> everyone hates them, but um, that's just kind of a joke, oh. but no, because everyone's discovering Idaho and they're like, Oh, it's this beautiful place. But they were, the neighbor was talking to my dad and he was like, man, how can we get rid of these geese? We're trying to, I'm telling my kids to get the, to get the dirt bikes and try to run over their nests. And my dad's like, he's like, whoa, whoa wait, wait a second. You know, I'm going to call him Steve. Wait a second, Steve. Like they were here long before us. And my dad told me that story and I was so proud of him. I was like, that's so, it's so true because we come in yeah. and we, and we try to manipulate the environment. We try to manipulate the landscape. And mind you, we live like out in the country on the snake river. And it's just like, you know, we're just, we're in their home and they're in their backyard and we really need to learn how to coexist. 
Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, animals have proven that they are willing and capable of coexisting. You know, we're the missing piece. We're that we're the second half of that relationship that hasn't done our part yet. And I realized this actually, you know, the same trip uh, to the Galapagos Islands with my dad was um, the animals there. And and of course, it's a really unique situation um, in the Galapagos Islands. But the animals there are referred to as fearless because, um, you know, you can get quite close to them and, and they don't really don't really respond to you. And I think it's really interesting. Like I, I live quite close to the mountains here in Calgary. I live close to Banff and the Rocky Mountains and we go on a lot of hikes and, you know, snowboarding and all these different um, activities in the mountains and um, wildlife encounters are quite common. And I find, you know, when I do come across a wild animal, typically one of two things happens. Either the animal sees me and it runs away, which suggests to me unfortunately that someone at some point has scared that animal and then I feel sad Uh the second thing that might happen is that the animal sees me and it approaches and this suggests to me that someone in the past has fed that animal and this also makes me sad and that whole situation is so unfortunate whether the animal retreats or approaches I'm sad because I'm seeing in its behavior that a human in the past has interacted with this animal in an incorrect way. But in the Galapagos Islands, you come, you know, within feet of a marine iguana or a blue-footed booby, and they do not react <laughs> at all. They they look at you, they they register you, and then they just carry on doing what they're doing because they sort of just see you as a natural part of that environment. You know, you're no different than the waves lapping on the shore, the bird flying by. You are just mm-hmm. another piece of that that natural scene. And of course, it's a really unique situation there. Those islands were inhabited much later than the mainland. So animals haven't really had a chance to evolve a fear response possibly or, you know, because there are such strict restrictions on how you're allowed to interact with the wildlife there individuals haven't necessarily had bad experiences with humans so they haven't themselves learned to be fearful and so i'm not saying that this is something we can realistically replicate in the mainland um in south america or north america or anywhere but i guess all i'm trying to get at is it was really eye-opening for me to see that animals are completely capable of happily and comfortably coexisting with us we're the ones that have have work to do yeah I just cannot agree with you more. I, you know, thank you. Thank you so much. This was such an interesting just discussion. And I'm so happy that you reached out. And I'm so happy that you agreed to just come on the show. Do you have any last minute words for the audience right now? Maybe anyone who wants to get involved or, you know, what they can do to help urban wildlife? Yeah, I mean, I think that the absolute best thing that you can do for urban wildlife is educate yourself, educate yourself about what animals live around you, educate yourself about their lifestyle, and uh, spread that word, spread that awareness and help to dispel some of those myths that are going around. Um, Because when we educate each other and um, we create this space where we welcome urban wildlife instead of seeing them as pests, Um, we build a relationship with nature that goes far beyond our cities because I think the way that we interact with our backyard pests is a reflection of how we interact with nature globally around the world. And it's not until we can respect and appreciate those animals right under our noses that we have 
any chance of conserving those incredible megafauna uh, in exotic lands. So it starts with you. It starts in your backyard. It starts with your kids. And uh, today's the day. So get out there and learn to appreciate your local fauna. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just want to say you're so well-spoken and I'm not just blowing smoke. It's so nice to <laughs> No, I'm serious. It's, it's just nice. And you're just so, you're such a great educator. And I just want to thank you for what you do because you really brought to light a lot of animals that, you know, that a lot of people don't really think about. And I've definitely, I've learned a lot and I know my listeners have too. So thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And I hope to touch base with you in a year or so, maybe have you back on the show and catch up and, you know, see what you're doing. But I just wish you the best of luck in all of your wildlife endeavors. Awesome. Thank you so much, Corbin. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to chat with your listeners. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.